Stay hungry, stay foolish. Once again, thank you to our partner, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. Let's get into part three of the Age of Heretics with Art Kleiner. Welcome back to part three of Art Kleiner and the Age of Heretics. I'm going to do a little intro to bring you back there because it's been two weeks since we released at part one and last week we released part two. Our guest explores the nature of effective leadership in times of change and defines its importance to the corporation of the future. His book reveals how managers can get stuck in counterproductive ways of doing things and shows why it takes a heretical point of view to get past the deadlock and move forward. We welcome back the author of The Age of Heretics, a history of the radical thinkers who reinvented corporate management. Art Liner, welcome back. Thanks, Aidan. It's so great to be continuing this conversation with you. Great. And, you know, when we start off, we're like, maybe we'll do a multi-part, we'll do two-part. Now we're like, let's do a four-part. And, and maybe <laughs> maybe it might be more than that. Art, you'll be sick of me by the time we get finished. We said we'd talk about the chapter you entitled Protesters. And the years here are 1964 to 1971. The players involved are Saul Alinsky. I'll let your, you tell, him, tell our audience who Saul Alinsky is. And this section is about the birth of shareholder activism, CSR, if you want to call it that. And here you remind us that social responsibility, at least the appearance of social responsibility, wasn't always a no-brainer for business. The heresy that was committed was, a company can move itself forward only by moving its community forward. The quote to warm you up, Art, that I selected was, into a 12th century village in Poland or France or the Low Countries, a protester against the church would stride. He would find a high spot not far from the local church's outer, outer wall. He would position himself so that the members of a gathering crowd could turn their eyes easily from his face to the spire and back to his face again. The quote is, we propose to give knowledge and understanding of the true church of God, he would say, and they would fall silent. They knew he was drawing a contrast as audaciously as he dared between the institution as it ought to be and the local priests who presided in the building before them. This church, he would say, is not made of stones or wood or of anything made by hand, for it's written in the Acts of the Apostles that the Most High dwelleth not in houses made by hands. As they listened, men in the crowd could feel the calluses on their fingers or hear again the stories of fathers or grandfathers who had carried the stones to this building. I thought that would be a nice way to tee you up and refresh your brilliant writing. It's probably been a while since you've read those words. As we start, I'm going to mention my own website, kleinerpowell.com, which is Kleiner Powell International or KPI, which is the business we're doing with editorial consultation and content strategy. And that quote takes me both sort of back and it, but it takes me to now because, you know, Willie Sutton said, why do we rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do people care if corporations are ethical or responsible? 
Because that's where the power is and that's where the influence is. And we instinctively know that even though most companies are more or less invisible, you know, there are very few companies, you know, the names of the companies, but there are very few companies where you know the name of the CEO. And very, very few where, you know, where the CEO has sort of stood for something. And yet those are the companies we really think of when we think of corporate responsibility. We think of the responsibility of a person. And we want to hold the person responsible. When, you know, Larry um, and Sergey at Google say, don't be evil, we want them to really not be evil. We want them to live up to their promise. When, you know, Richard Branson at Virgin says, we're going to have a, you know, a creative wild company. We want it to be creative and wild, but we want it to run. And we think we have more influence than we actually do. We want to exercise the influence that we think we have because these companies are so much a part of the landscape in our lives. And yet they are structures. They're giant contracts. They're invisible entities. We don't really, we are, we feel this tension between the control that we don't have and the influence. They want us as customers. They might want us as shareholders, but they don't really want to hear us. And they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. And their whole purpose is to do what they're going to do anyway, because that's why they were chartered. And yet, they need to be responsible. And every once in a while, some kind of crisis comes up that puts all of this in perspective, like the, you know, the troubles with uh, January 6th in the United States and, you know, what are companies going to support? Are they going to support um, insurrection or are they going to, you know, not support those who contributed to it or climate change? What are companies going to do about their responsibility and their long-term interests versus the fact that they are probably, you know, making uh, money right now from not worrying about their emissions too much or pandemic and the opportunities that companies have had to step forward and really fast track research and development in so many different ways and yet then to face the accusations that they're profiteering. So one of the big major corporate responsibility issues emerged in the 1960s. It was 1964, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. Things would never be the same. And the riots of that time were expressions of the frustration that people felt being trapped in a system that was about to change. And you could feel it being about to change. And one of the big issues at that time, in a way that probably isn't true nearly as much today, was jobs, was industrial employment. Because most of the jobs that were the best jobs were factory jobs for people who had not gone to college and they could be very powerful and good jobs. 
they could establish you with a middle-class lifestyle. But they were closed in many parts of the country to people of color. And particularly in Rochester, they were closed to the many Black people who lived there who saw Eastman Kodak, saw a constant stream of jobs being available and couldn't be hired. And a manager named John Mulder saw this as well. And he was at the, uh, his wife taught Sunday school at a local church where people had gained a sense of commitment and responsibility after the riots in Rochester. And Mulder wanted to make a difference. So he committed the company to a program that would be, you know, hiring and training of people from the black neighborhoods to work in the factory. And the details, you know, it's one of those corporate things where there's lots of details and legal ramifications and bits and pieces and ins and outs. But the basic story is he probably could have gotten away with it if he'd been quiet about it, but he went public innocently. Of course, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be proud to talk about this. And he got shut down and squeezed out. But that whole effort began a movement in Rochester, which was one of the earliest shareholder activism stories that began to occur in the 60s and carried through till today. So Aiden, here's the kind of the situation. You have a middle-level manager in Kodak in Rochester, very well-intentioned, sees this problem. There are 10,000 potential Kodak employees. We need employees. They're black. They're in the you know impoverished neighborhoods in the city. We could create a program that would train them, develop them, bring them into jobs, change their lives. It would be a life-changing thing. And it would be, it would make the company look good. It would make the city look good. And it might forestall riots, which nobody knew were going, whether or not they were going to happen next summer. He was a member of a church that was contemplating efforts that they could make to make things better in Rochester and which had been in touch with Saul Alinsky. Reverend Paul Long, who later moved to Ohio where I met him and we ended up talking and that's how I found out about the story, was one of the people who was sent to kind of bring Alinsky in. And Mulder was then introduced to a reverend at a different church at one of the black churches in the city. His name was Franklin Florence. And they conceived of the idea that there would be a community group or a business, they called it Fight On, because this was, you know, civil, the early days of civil rights. And they were going to broker the arrangement with Kodak and shepherd the new employees into the system. And Mulder might have gotten away with it, but somebody leaked the story or the story got out. And all of a sudden, this became a lightning rod for, you know, a symbol of whether the civil rights movement could be trusted as a vehicle for companies and whether companies could be trusted as a vehicle for civil rights. 
So looking back on it, you think this is a huge story of institutional and cultural mistrust. And of course, it's going to blow up. But you could also look back at it and say, these are a lot of people acting in good faith, including the leaders of the company, who didn't realize that they had in front of them an impossible situation. Where in order to make it work, you have to step back and step outside of the whole structure you're in, regardless of where you're starting politically, and look at it with fresh eyes. And arguably, that's exactly what's going on with companies today doing social responsibility, or, you know, as they call it, uh, environmental, social, and governance. You know, you need to step out and look at the company and look at the situation and the community as if you were looking at it from the outside, while still maintaining your ability to be in the inside and act. You have to be a heretic. And... It isn't easy to learn to do that. So one thing leads to another, and there's a kind of a public fight, and Kodak doesn't look good, and fight on this community group doesn't look good. Nobody looks good. And into all of this, they bring Saul Alinsky. And Saul Alinsky is a very controversial figure. I'm not sure if you're aware of how controversial he's become in recent years. Um, he's, you know, he's gone now. He died a long time ago, but he was one of the very first kind of politics. He was one of the very first proponents in post-war America of politics as theater. In other words, you make bold, dramatic moves and then you wake people up and they think differently than they did before. Now, now, of course, we're all sick of bold dramatic moves, right? Because bold dramatic moves are theatrical and often the substance behind them is kind of weak and they promote, they create backlashes and they often don't carry things forward. But at the time, this sort of bold dramatic move was you know, it was fresh and it was a way of breaking up the logjam. So when uh, Reverend Long and others invited Alinsky to come in and sort of help manage Rochester's civil rights problem from their side, not to manage it from the city's point of view, but from their church, you know, they were going to bring him in and see what he could do to kind of bring a protest together in a constructive way rather than riots. They take him out to lunch. And the service isn't that great. And they can't uh, seem to get the, you know, the, the wait person's attention. They didn't call that person a wait person. And they are talking back and forth about, you know, when are they going to be able to eat? And I guess they needed their plates cleared away or something. And, Alinsky has this big plate full of spaghetti and he holds it up in the air and he like lets it drop on the floor. It's a big crash. And he says, that's how you get people's attention. And that's what he proceeded to do in Rochester. But he was trying to figure out how am I going to get the attention of a corporation like Kodak? They can ignore anybody. They are so skilled at ignoring everybody 
but there's one group that they can't ignore. So Fight On bought shares of stock in Kodak. And they appeared, Alinsky appeared, and Reverend um, Florence appeared at the shareholders meeting. Now, by now, Mulder, who had instigated all this, he, he was still at Kodak, but he had been moved out of a position of authority and he was kind of, you know, in some kind of corporate Siberia. I, as I say, I never met him, but I uh, read about him. I think I wrote to him. But the battle has, or the movement, or the public display has now moved to the boardroom. And Alinsky and others, you know, essentially tried to have confrontations at the shareholders' meetings. And there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which having a confrontation at a shareholders' meeting is very difficult. You know, there's a lot of formal apparatus, and you, know, you but you don't have to do a lot to get a lot of attention. And this was the first time. And so that started a tradition of trying to reach companies through their shareholders, which has now become a kind of quiet way of getting corporate attention that it has lasted all this time. So the, the, the original story, you know, and, and, it, and interestingly, that group fight on that Reverend Florence started became a real contractor with with Kodak and became a you know a, a company that trained and um, and helped uh, you know both uh, employees you know people of color becoming employees at uh, Kodak and uh, Xerox and other Rochester companies, but also became an entrepreneurial company and a supplier of parts and equipment to various companies there and it became a viable business and i think you know it may still be in existence today i think it might have been sold a few years ago so on one level it's a success story the people who were trying to break into kodak kind of did in various ways on another level it's not a success story. You know, nobody would say that Rochester or any American city is really an egalitarian, you know, or high equity paradise for, um, for employees. It raised awareness, but raising awareness also created various forms of backlash. And in a third way, and this is, I think, what you're most interested in, it changed the conversation about what is a corporation supposed to be. Because as soon as you have corporations looking for reasons to be good, looking for aspects of their purpose that go beyond making money, you open the door to a lot of ambiguity. And we've been in that realm ever since. It's two of the big voices that get heard, three big voices get heard and almost symbolize what um, the sides of this debate. One is Ralph Nader. 
you know, who basically applies the shareholder activism principle to General Motors and, you know, the automobile safety and auto emissions and, you know, basically goes to GM and ends up with um, an influence on uh, General Motors and the auto industry in part because he did that and he went to their, they bought stock and therefore went to their shareholder meetings. The second big voice is Milton Friedman, the conservative economist, writer, very engaging, very engaging man, and you know, uh, and, and personally, very direct and forthright, and and able to talk to people clearly. And he publishes a major article in the New York Times in 1970 that essentially says the purpose of sh- of a company should be returning investment to shareholders and nothing else. And if you know, if you're a corporate leader. And you're trying to do something like, you know, deal with emissions or, um, or, you know, hire people of color or fulfill any other social goal. You are shortchanging your shareholders and liable and should be held, you know, legally accountable to them. The quiet, and I've read that essay and many people have commented on it. And the big issue with that essay is what if the way to your shareholders ultimate returns is through some form of responsibility? What if your company's viability depends on either directly fulfilling society's needs or on just being the kind of competent leader who can do have it all, who can, you know, be making a lot of money and also fulfilling um, ethical and social and environmental goals, kind of like Paul Pullman at Unilever or many others. And Friedman would argue that if you, sort of like uh, the Henry Ford case, if you're making money for shareholders, everything else will fall into place. And for so maybe we should jump to the Ford case, but basically this is the dialogue that has happened, happening now, happened in the 60s and happened all the way at the dawn of the um, automobile era. What does a company gain if it only seeks immediate financial return? What does it gain if it seeks long-term returns? And most importantly, who figures this out? Who understands how to balance the two? You know, uh, my other book, uh, Wise Advocate, is all about balancing, you know, short-term expedience and long-term plans and goals and how those occupy different parts of the brain. And we get muddled when we try it, if we're not practiced. And once we decide we're going to, like, balance the two, then it's a little bit easier. But we get muddled and a lot of the debate around corporations was about unraveling this model. I know I have to make money. I know that if I don't handle environmental and social goals, well, I'm going to have to answer to my kids, if not the mirror. And how do I integrate the two? This is business. I'm supposed to have it all. It's a huge question, Art. I was, 
I was only thinking about this the other day. You know, when I when I I, I had a career in uh, professional sports until I was in my early thirties, and then I went into business. And my understanding of business came from movies like Wall Street, and you know, even in an education perspective, was that the purpose of business is to make a profit for the business owner or the shareholders. That was it, you know. And CSR, there's a lot of lipstick on the pig. <laughs> CSR initiatives there just to tick the box, they're marketing essentially as well. So I, I, I wanted to, to shine a light on that and through the Ford case, but I wanted to, because it's the age of heretics, I wanted to also recognize Mulder because you said to him, you said about him that even though he was the catalyst who ignited the change in some way, he was the inside man, if you want to call him that, he was the whistleblower of sorts the term catalyst itself, the catalyst gets is the igniter of change, but actually gets burned up in the transaction. And often isn't around to reap any of the rewards or the credits, except as you said, when they look in the mirror, or when they meet our maker, and we can look them straight in the eye and go, I did my best there, chief. And I, I, I love your thoughts on that, because many of our listeners are those catalysts or change makers or last week, we did a show uh, the, about rebels within organization, this whole idea of uh, the rare breed within an organization, because the organization is not set up for those people. And it, it takes so much bravery. And it's why, firstly, I was attracted to your work was this, and then I got deeper into understand the whole ecosystem behind it, the environment, the business environment, how it's all changed, but most importantly, the origins of it. I'd love your thoughts on that before we moved on to Ford. Right now, uh, Juliet Powell, my partner in Kleiner Powell International, and I are midway through writing a book called something like Who Watches the Watch Robots? It's about the ethics of AI, artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of people raising concerns about artificial intelligence right now inside companies, you know, because the threat is if the threat is real, it's a terrible threat. It's, you know, it's basically um, somewhere between here and the matrix in terms of being <laughs> managed by, uh, it's probably a lot closer to here than the matrix, but you don't have to go far to think this is a really dystopian future we're entering. And, and there are a lot of details and issues that have to do with the quality of oversight and the quality of thinking among the programmers, decision makers, business leaders, who are running AI. So the field is rife with heretics. A whistleblower is a heretic who's gone public. And the field is also rife with whistleblowers. But it's also, there, there are a lot of people who are thinking about this and not sure how to act. Just as there were a lot of people who were moved by the civil rights movement <clears throat> but not sure what they should or could do differently. <clears throat> and I think that, and you know, the original heretics, again, why would somebody go to all that trouble? It's because they feel something deeply that contradicts the institution. We're fortunate to live in a culture that values raising objections. It's never comfortable. It's never easy. 
the kinds of objections that are easy to raise are the superficial ones that you were talking about a few minutes ago. But to raise objections in a deep way, the kinds of objections that are easy to raise are pretty superficial ones, like, you know, the ones you read in glib self-help books or glib management books. But to really raise an issue takes a discipline of character that you kind of have to learn as you go. And I think a lot of people have learned that discipline of character in one way or another. I think there's an element of, you know, are you prepared to leave your company? As we've seen people leave Facebook and Google and many other companies over issues where they just couldn't stay either because they decided they wanted to leave or the company decided they were too much trouble to have around. Um, I think that dynamic is there's no glib way to talk about it, except to say that everyone who comes it's almost like a mythic story, right? You come, you know, you're in a larger environment. You see that something's wrong with it. You believe that everybody else is going to see what you see because it's obvious. You know, it's like Galileo, just look through the telescope and you'll see that, uh, you know, the earth is moving around the sun um, or what have you. And yet you can't get people to look through the telescope. And, and you become part of a larger story. And so that if you're in a company, the challenge then becomes, how do you become part of that larger story without sacrificing the reasons why you're in the company in the first place? And every circumstance is different, but there's always, you know, there's always at least a strategy for doing that. There's a way to do that. Um, but you have to be aware that you may come up against an issue that you can't get past. And in an issue like carbon emissions or artificial intelligence or social responsibility or employment, there may not be a win-win situation. There may be an alternating you win, then I win situation. There may be a situation in which you find a path that, you know, the, the cause becomes more of a hobby. Or there may be a way in which you have to kind of frame it from the beginning and establish responsibility for your own part of the enterprise. And you have to be a bit of a political creature to make it work. You know, Mulder and uh, some of the other people I wrote about suffered because they weren't that political. You know, they were engineers. They thought, you know, this is obvious. If I just talk about it, everybody will see it. I've known a number of people who are like that in various companies, and, I, and many of them have been true visionaries. I'm thinking of a couple people in particular who were visionary engineers within companies, had long careers within those companies, but never achieved the kind of reward recognition and position 
that would go commensurate with what they really had to say and really had to offer. And you make your peace with that. Or you start your own company. Or you really figure out how to package what you have to say. You're so right on the politics. I know so many of our listeners, and, and I'm one of them as well, where I worked in a large bureaucratic organization. A senior member of that organization took me aside one day and he goes, Aiden, you, you're on the right path. You need to learn to speak politique. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I had no idea. I was so naive to think that the idea was enough and misunderstood about how an organization really works, particularly a legacy one. And he offered to teach me how to speak politique. And I just didn't have the patience. But I realized that that's actually how the change happens, that that shift and knowing who to speak to, knowing who to influence, knowing what plates to smash on the floor. Yeah, and when to smash plates and when to do otherwise. I'll, I'll tell you a story about myself. I was working for a company and I had a boss who I'm not going to name. And the boss said something in a public meeting. He said, when I hear the expression, um, don't ask permission, ask forgiveness. I hate that expression. He's just said it in passing in a public meeting, but it stuck with me because I was, you know, an expert on management. And one of the big aspects of what, you know, Amy Edmondson would now call the fearless organization is that it's okay to ask forgiveness. It's okay to make mistakes. And you want to set up a culture where people feel free. And I sort of said that out loud to a couple of other people, innocently. And that was fine. That was absolutely fine. A few months later, however, I was at a meeting, a retreat, you know, to sort of rethink the future of this part of the organization. And I was fairly senior in that group. And the same boss said, you know, a lot of people were not getting the kind of response and participation that we had expected. Why is that? And I was in a group of sort of the senior people in this subgroup. So there's a large part of the organization. There's about 20 people in the room. And I feel a sense of responsibility because other people have heard me say something. I figure if they don't hear me say it now, they'll think that I'm not really standing behind it, which is foolish. I mean, I was, that is like such a self-important way to think that everybody is watching me, which of course they weren't. Nobody's watching anybody <laughs> except when they, except when they want to, or they have to. Nobody's watching the AI either, man. <laughs> Nobody's watching the AI either. Well, who watches the watch robots is another question. There weren't any watch robots in this room, but there were a lot of people. And so I raised my hand and I said, you know, when I said his first name and we're all like colleagues here. And I said, part of the problem might be that, you know, we do have an ethic of ask permission, not forgiveness. 
And I remember when you said you didn't like that. And I was thinking, and then I went on this long thing, this rationale in my mind about, you know, well, one way to justify that is before you ask forgiveness, you have to really think through the acts that you make. I don't know how many people were paying attention to that, but I believe the boss was and a few other people. And I think the message I was really trying to get across in a passive aggressive way was the message that actually did get across, which is that there's a lot of mistrust here and I mistrust the situation. I don't feel safe. And I'm saying this as if I did, but I really don't. And I don't think anybody else does either. If I had said it that plainly and that clearly and that outspokenly, I probably, it probably would have been better in the end. But at that point, any sort of hope I had for building a closer relation, working relationship with this individual, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, and a lot of the issues have to do with those kinds of subtleties. You know, you think you're justified in saying something and you are justified in saying it, but you don't think through the effects because you're not, because it takes time to really feel through the whole dynamics of a story like that. It's not easy and it's not something to try to do on the fly. Even if you're reasonably experienced or if like me, you've written about these kinds of dynamics when they happen to other people, it's not so easy to see them when they're happening to yourself. And then every once in a while, so I don't know exactly how to draw moral from that story, but if I were, it would be on the other side. When somebody is trying that hard to get a point across, don't assume you know what the point is right away. And it's a warning sign that there are other issues that will resonate with so many of our listeners as well art like that we've all had a moment like that where take the shot art take the shot and you're and it's you you just wish an, an older art would come on your shoulder and go no 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 kid don't take the shot it's not time it's not worth it don't die on that hill but also take the shot but take it in a different way you know and you have to care right like did i care enough to really cultivate that individual privately. Could I have made an, you know, now I would coach myself rather than saying something in a meeting, make an appointment to talk to him privately, not before everybody and say, and come in with a solution. I had a similar one art where I did it privately. I was, I was captain of a, a team, a, a professional team. And I went and said it to the coach about I felt his decisions were wrong and they sent a bad message to the team. He never picked me again. 
<laughs> so I, I, uh, it doesn't always work out, you know, and, but, but, but I have to say it comes down to that mirror. You know, I, I don't regret it. It, it didn't work out well for me. It, it caused a lot of pain and heartache and I considered, and I, I often played it back to myself and said, should you have done that? Should you have played that better? You know, and, and I and that's one situation where I go, no, you did the right thing and I can stand over that now. And I feel that that's made me part of who I am. And I'm I'm proud of that. That was my Mulder moment in uh, professional rugby. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think you got to do what's right for you in the moment. I, I, I think you regret not doing it rather than doing it. That's my feeling on it. I don't know what you think. Well, I think when you don't do it, and you don't do it, and you don't do it, and you don't do it, it becomes a habit to not do it. Um, moments like that, when you do stick your neck out, live with you. And some fraction of them turn out well. I've had other moments where I stuck my neck out and turned out really well. What I didn't realize is how sophisticated you have to be in order to do that consistently effectively. It's like, it's almost like there's an art and a psychology to it that, and on some level, I imagine this was true of you in, in the rugby team as well. Um, on some level, I knew that I didn't know enough, but I was just fed up. And in part fed up for personal reasons that weren't valid, but that, you know, but that were driving me. And because they weren't valid, I wasn't paying attention to them. I was like saying, you know, this is not about my personal resentment. There's, you know, something going on here, a dynamic. I, people know that I know about this. I have some responsibility to speak up. I didn't have a responsibility to speak up in a way that would help me feel good in the moment. I had a responsibility to look at the whole organization. And if I had looked at the whole organization, I would have discovered that there is a fractal quality where on some level, if, if you want, if you're in a big organization and they believe and they say, you know, we believe, uh, don't uh, ask permission, ask forgiveness. But everything they do, what Chris Argers would have called their espoused values is ask permission or you won't be forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might not be an easy thing to change. I only wrote an article today. I called it reverse story and grace. And I was talking about like, in, instead of the portrait in the attic rotting <laughs> you're rotting in real life and your portraits locked away in an attic somewhere and that's your true self and and sometimes to navigate the organization you have to wear a mask and and a lot of corporate heretics really struggle with that they can't they can't a they don't have the patience b they don't have the language they don't have the wide wise advocate uh, to your book the two minds the two different brain uh, setups to be able to navigate that politi political environment and um, as a result they just go as you say they just go I'm going to take the shot even though it's not the right shot to take if at all so that's a that's a huge thing to think we, we, we could talk about it all the time I'm going to ask you do, do we have time to do for 
Ford, Ford is a good capstone to all this. Well, well, I'll set you up with Ford. I just want to, for our audience, those people who joined us, I think it was in episode one we mentioned Ford, where Ford increased their wages for his workforce and in a way kind of as, a, as a, to catalyze the American middle class so that they could become cons uh, consumers of new Ford cars as well. That was the kind of, that's where you're going with actually, if I do good by society, there's some benefits for me as well. So I can actually raise all ships here. But therefore, at the time, to your point, and we talked about before, he got sued by Dodge, and they succeeded in suing them. So Ford has his well documented, you know, decline, and has a son, Edsel who also has a decline. And then Edsel has a son, Henry Ford II. And Henry Ford II becomes one of the major industrial figures of the 1960s. He's the scion of a scion. And at first, it's not clear that he's going to be a business person at all. You know, the Ford Motor Company is looking like it's going to drift into other hands, one of whom is Robert McNamara, uh, who then becomes the Secretary of Defense in the Vietnam War, during the Vietnam War. But Ford takes the reins of the company. He hires all of the, you know, intellectuals you know, that were later known as the whiz kids in the early 50s, rebuilds the company from the mess that his grandfather had made of it and starts producing amazing, great cars like the Mustang. And, you know, be, turn, returns the company into an iconic company and is like forging ahead and Detroit is doing really well. And then once again comes the civil rights movement. There's no shareholder activism at the Ford Motor Company, but there is a feeling of responsibility as a civic leader. Henry Ford II decides that he is going to create an amazing, what we would now call an upskilling or reskilling program, a job training program. And he's gonna do it you know, with the government uh, city government of Detroit and the details again are not as important as the overarching issue which is that he failed right at the beginning of this conversation Aiden you talked about you know sort of the lipstick on the pig of corporate social responsibility and this was a case where that kind of happened it was dramatic and involved thousands of people and the jobs, you know, either weren't there or the people weren't qualified for the jobs and it just kind of fell apart. And at some point, everybody just wanted to kind of pack it away and go home. It was a good faith effort from what I could gather from reading about it. I, this was one part of the book I did on secondary sources, so other published articles, but it was written about a lot and you got the impression it was a good faith effort but it wasn't it was an effort where people really didn't know what they were doing the problem you know when a corporation tackles a problem 
it has to not just have integrity of intent, but it has to have some competence. Otherwise, you wouldn't call a corporation in to do it. You don't just want the company's money. You want their expertise and their engagement. And nobody knew it at the time, but historically, that was sort of the beginning of Ford's decline. Probably not causation, but correlation. So, you know, by the end of the um, 1970s, the big three are facing terrible damage, horrible quality reputation. Um, Chrysler is close to bankruptcy. Ford and, um, and GM both have their worst years in the late 70s. And then the quality movement comes in. But the cause of the problem is that the competence, basically, American industry was coasting at that time. And the automakers were coasting most of all, and a whole other production ethic, operational wisdom was emerging in Japan, um, ironically brought there by several American, um, you know, thought leaders, real thought leaders, uh, the most prominent being uh, W. Edward Stemming, the originator, the, the most eminent of the originators of the quality movement. And the combination of, meth- of methods and ethics and day-to-day practice at the heart of the quality movement was really alien to corporate culture. In fact, corporate culture has never been the same since. And the moment of truth was when Henry Ford, you know, heard a presentation by Peter Schwartz, who was a, another figure in the book, who, and, then, and a colleague of Pierre Vock at the scenario story at Royal Dutch Shell. But Henry Ford, here's this presentation, you know, Japanese cars, this is the mid-70s. Japanese cars are going to, you know, basically eat the lunch of the American auto industry. And he says, nope, Americans are not going to buy small cars. Case closed. It says a few other pejorative things. But basically the message is, I don't want to hear this again. Don't ask forgiveness, ask permission. <laughs> and. <clears throat> It's the same complacency and arrogance that is part of that failed effort to bring jobs to Detroit. And I think the question that this has raised may be a good question to close with. We want our leaders to do extraordinary things. We want them to do extraordinary things because corporations are extraordinarily powerful. We know, because we're not running the place, that if they stepped back and look at the, looked at themselves the way we see them, they'd be capable of extraordinary things, especially if they combine that knowledge with what they already know. But that means they have to be extraordinary people. 
extraordinarily farsighted, extraordinarily smart, extraordinarily capable, extraordinarily simple in their ability to communicate with people. Is this something where we wait for those people to show up? Or do we somehow expect people to have that quality? Or do we think we can train people to have that quality? And how many of those people have to be there? And if they don't, and if people who are in charge don't want to become like that, can we demand that they do? Answers on a postcard, please, too. <laughs> uh, it's a huge question, man. Huge question. Well, I think, as you said, probably a good way to leave it. And, you know, questions are great. I, I like leaving things in questions as well, because hopefully people will ponder. And that's the goal of this. Hopefully inspire people to think me, you and our audience as well. Art, it's always a, an immense pleasure. I want to tee up our next episode, which is you mentioned them there, Pierre Vach, and the whole idea of scenario planning, Royal Dutch Shell, fascinating, fascinating stuff. So we're going to cover that in part four. Again, Art, I want to thank you. Also, where can people find out? You mentioned the website at the start of the show. Let's give it another plug before we close up. Appreciate it. It's, uh, the company is Kleiner Powell International, and it's KleinerPowell.com. I put that in the show notes as well, Art, and make sure that I push people to your great content and indeed your great services. Don't forget as well, Art's other book, Wise Advocate, and then the other one in the pipeline as well. We will we'll, without doubt be covering Wise Advocate Art in the near future as well. So always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to talking to you next time. It's terrific. Thanks, Aiden. Talk to you soon. And I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that is innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com and I'll see you next week.